Welcome to Shorts, Season 1. I'm Jen Thomas. I live in London, UK. And I'm Lizzie Falconer, based in Atlanta, Georgia. We are two long-distance friends who want to talk about what we're reading. This podcast is about how reading short stories can show the world through different perspectives. Today, we're reading Passage by Kevin Jared Hossein. It was the regional winner of the 2018 Commonwealth Short Story Prize from the Caribbean. You can find it on granta.com. We've linked the story in the show notes, so please read it before listening. This story follows a forester in Trinidad who, after hearing about a mysterious woman living in the woods, embarks on a solo journey to find her. But on his way, he falls and breaks his ankle and is rescued by the woman and her family. This encounter changes the future of that family forever. So Lizzie, what did you think? I'm so excited to talk about this story, (laughs) Jen. (laughs) I'm very excited uh, because I read this story once, enjoyed it. And then the more I've read it, the more I think that this author is a genius and this narrator sucks. I mean, what an unlikable narrator. And it only gets worse the more time you read it and how the author talks, like puts in these little clues to what a jerk he is. Fantastic. What about you? I mean... It took me a couple of goes to read the synopsis because the story itself is so absurd that it makes me laugh out loud. <laughs> I mean, just the idea that this that this character who I completely agree is like turns out to be really unlikable, but you don't really realize that at the beginning kind of embarks on this grand journey, but it's just it's like a it just it's just not what it kind of cracks up to be and he really the author really pulls the rug out from you I think of like it makes you feel like you're about to kind of be on some incredible quest and actually this person is just kind of uh in a mess and he gets lost and it's just you know he really takes you on a a different journey to the one that we think we're beginning so (laughs) very strange uh strange little story but yeah Mm -hmm. interesting uh, and yeah, shall we shall we dive in? Yeah, well, I just think we should say that <laughs> this is also a special story in shorts season one because it's our only author that's a man. <laughs> yeah, it took us some time, friends, to mm-hmm. find one. So we mm-hmm. read quite a number of stories by men that we we deemed not worthy of uh, of a podcast episode. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, this is a this is a special one, a one off. Yeah, passage passage really got us. All right. So we start off this story, Jen, in a bar called The Tricky Jester. And I, I'm obsessed right off the bat. You, you know, as all Saturday nights went, we slipped by the wives and find ourselves down by the tricky jester. Right off the bat. Amazing language. You can hear the dialect of Trinidad. And it's just such a good name for a bar. I well, first of all, when I was at university, there was a bar named the Jester, which was a very, very familiar haunt. So I'm, I'm kind of already pulled into this, um, this story. It's in Leamington Spa for those of you on this side of the Atlantic Ocean. Um, but the 
I think what is interesting is, is as so often happens, this first kind of line is really revealing because you kind of get the sense of this mundanity, like every Saturday, like this is where they are. And so you're kind of, the idea that this is setting up for someone going, oh, there's adventure on the horizon. I can go on this, you know, I can discover something new is kind of set there immediately. So we get this sense of who these people are. They're kind of day-to-day, unchanging routine um, right from the word go. Yeah, we do. And we get um, these moments, these lines that later I realized were foreshadowing, but you, when you first read them, that you don't realize that's what's happening. You just think those are lyrical and beautiful. You know, it says the tricky jester, you leave your shame at the door, the new places you have to comb your hair and put on perfume just to get a drink. Times change, you know, world going one way, people another. So here's our narrator at the bar with his friends and He's like, he's not happy. He normally likes the tricky jester, but there's a guy there, Stu, who is telling a story. And our narrator isn't isn't all that excited about the story, Jen. No, he's, it's a funny one with this because he kind of, he describes Stu. So that Stu is like his friend who kind of tells this, um, who tells the story. And it's kind of, you know, he sets him up straight away. He's an important man. And so he gets to talk. And you just get this sense that there's this kind of weird tension. You know, it's not, he doesn't seem to kind of admire Stu, but he sort of, I don't know. It's like, you. It, it, there's something about this relationship between the two. It's kind of crackling. He's kind of observing Stu from afar. Um, and it's a really interesting it's a really interesting setup, I think. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we've got these middle-aged men in a bar on a Saturday. Could be anywhere in the world, right? And they're one of them's not so happy with the other. But what's genius, I think, about what Hossein does is that he he uses the language of Trinidad to give us a very specific idea of where we are and make the story like both rich and also accessible. And you know, he says, get Stu loose on white rum and salt prunes. And you wouldn't think that they'd ever put such a man in charge of 12,000 volts. And it's just like, that is, I don't know. I, I, I really love how the author does that. There's nowhere else that you're, you're talking about getting loose on white rum and salt prunes, probably not at the, the jester at your university. <laughs> no, we got loose on other things. Um, <laughs> Not salt prunes, which is nothing I've never, uh, I've never heard of. Have you had a salt prune before, Lizzie? No, I haven't. I haven't. No. But I did spend a couple months in the West Indies. Um, so I recognize like the flow and the musicality of this language. And um, I, I love it. So I just, I just can't say enough. So we've got Stu telling this story. And he's talking about going on this hike. He tells us Stu, everybody's listening to Stu, like can't get enough of it. And um, I love the way when he talks about Stu telling the story, he says, um, the excursions is too much to count. And each one had a goddamn parable attached to it. Like each one was a pilgrimage to Mecca. And it's just... (laughs) Like, Stu is like this oracle, like this wise figure. And not only does each excursion have a story, it has a parable, a goddamn parable. (laughs) He's Mm -hmm. just like, there's like admiration, but there's also kind of 
disdain and irritation just just bound up. And I love the fact that this, you know, you're saying there's a musicality to the language, but there's also a, a real personality in the language. Like the, this isn't descriptive. It's 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 biting. And it's that's that's um incredibly uh neatly done of Hussein, I think, mm-hmm. in the story. Yeah. And he, the narrator right after that says, we never wanted him to stop the embellishment and the exaggeration though. You know, he likes Stu's stories. Mm. And then he says, as you get older, you learn to embrace daydreams. And we will see that this man has some daydreams. He embraces them. He falls into them. He breaks dreams. (laughs) That was me foreshadowing. (laughs) There you go. More to come later in the podcast. Oh God. So Stu has gone on this hike and he doesn't follow the map. We get this great line, folks from abroad, selfie stick enthusiasts come by the van load every weekend to brave the path. But Stu, you know, he goes out on his own. He doesn't need a GPS or compass, whatever. Again, our narrator says uh, something that you kind of, I blasted through the first time and the second time. You have to learn to get lost to really find yourself was this is Stu's mantra, right? Mm-hmm. So again, you get this sense of like, where are we going? You know, there's this sense of the parable and the kind of depth of that and the idea that, you know, this is something that Stu just says again and again, you know, he goes without his GPS. And there's this just kind of bound up wisdom. But again, we're just going to go, when we fought, when, I, when we get to later in the story, that idea is just going to come and haunt our narrator. Yep. And the narrator's like, we want Stu to keep talking. And then he's like, Stu's hiking stories ain't nothing too special to me because I'm a forester, you know? (laughs) And he's like, I can, I specialize in plants. I can name any plants. And so he wants to hear Stu's stories. He doesn't, he's equally fascinated, but also trying to show that he has experience too. So Stu, Stu is hiking. And then all of a sudden he notices a doll nailed to a tree. And then he sees a woman coming out of the house. And this is kind of the climax of the story, of Stu's story, at least. This this bare-breasted woman coming out of the hut. Oh, man. I mean, this is where the story starts to really go off the rails for me. Um, It's the description of this woman from Stu is... Oh, it's difficult. It's difficult to read, I thought. Imagine what was going through my head, fellas. Half-naked women in the forest just waiting for me. A house to we self. It's just, it's really difficult. You know, like this idea that just because of, you know, just because she's there on her own, you know, wait, just waiting for me. Yeah, and he's like talking about, you know, bare-breasted and he says, mirage or not, them tatas were real, right? So he's given them this very like sexualized image of her. And, and then he says, it was only then he noticed how stick thin she was, cheeks sallow and sunken, almost like a carcass. Oh, how sexy. What? Yeah. Yeah, so it's like the first thing he notices is kind of her sexuality and then and this idea that he she is sort of set up there waiting for this you know this explorer to come and then it's like actually you know maybe there's something wrong and maybe this maybe you know maybe this sort of human being isn't um 
the the quote unquote temptress that uh, that he thinks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and no, I wish Jen that he thought. Oh, does this woman need help? No, no. He goes to the other side of the coin. He said, "Woman could have been Ladia Bless for all I know. Temptation incarnate. All that was mif- missing was the hoof." And off he goes. He runs away. First, he's like. She's mine for the taking. Then he gets scared and she must be the devil. And he runs home and runs back to the tricky jester to tell his friends. But that's because that's all a woman can be, (laughs) is either a sexual being or the devil. (laughs) There is, I think you and I can both agree (laughs) Mm -hmm. that those Mm -hmm. are the two. The two. um, the, the two, two options. I mean, it's interesting that like Stu is set up as this guy who's telling kind of moral parables. I mean, literally the word parable is used. And I think, you know, we don't have to travel that far through the Bible to also realize that women are sexual beings or they're the devil. Like they're, and he uses the word temptress. There's so much bound up in this idea that like, you know, this is how, this is how women are kind of being seen to these men and these, you know, oh. It was like, I just found this really difficult. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Parts of this story are very hard for a woman to read. And we're only just beginning. So Stu finishes telling this story and our narrator is like, you know, sometimes I force myself to laugh, but this time I was too bothered to put up any kind of front. Just something about the story threw me off. I couldn't explain it this time. And then Jen, he decides that he's going to go find that woman. It wasn't craziness. It was clarity. That's how he makes the decision. It was like like a a magnetic force. force. (laughs) So he's like, so he basically hears this story that obviously has made you and I go, oh God, Stu, Stu hasn't reacted as a human. Is this woman okay? And our narrator, who we don't we don't know his name, he hears it and he goes, "Yes, this I must go on this this journey to to meet this woman, this kind of hollow cheeked, bare bare breasted woman in the forest." Why would he go? Yeah, I mean, the first time I read it, I was like, "Oh, he wants an adventure, right? Like he wants to go find, I don't know." I was like, he's taking himself on a hero's journey. But then when I read it again, I realized, no, he's literally going to find the woman. It says in the last paragraph before it breaks into the second part, it says, what was then I realized it was a long time since I actually wanted to do anything. Some fellas buy a Porsche, some lie down on their secretaries, some go to Miami. Me, I was determined to find this mystery woman. Yes, sir. I was going to climb that mountain. So this is a midlife crisis. This is mm-hmm. no. This is no great quest. This is some by a Porsche. Some also. Can we just talk about the language? Some lie down on their secretaries. I that feel, line is, makes me want to go to it, sleep. <laughs> like put me. Like assassinate me. That's. I hate it. It's a, I mean, I don't you know just what, picture I don't know some what decade woman like, this is. Well, it has to be I recent because they say iPads, they say selfie stick enthusiasts. Like, you know, yeah. there's parts I mean, of the story. Is, yeah, this story is set in like the now times. Mm-hmm. And just think, is he, is it this character, this unlikable narrator who's stuck in the, I mean, what decade are we talking about men lying down on their secretaries? Probably the know. 40s through to the to the 90s. 
I also, I really struggle with the line, yes, sir, I was going to climb that mountain because it just feels like he's talking about obviously like physically climbing the mountain, but he's talking about kind of metaphorically like, you know, overcoming and going on this quest. But there's also something kind of weird about how that line is also aligned with this idea of like finding the mystery woman Mm -hmm. and lying down on the secretary. It's Mm -hmm. just... It just it's just so uncomfortable. But what's really clever is I as you know, we're discussing it's this narrator who's unlikable. It feels like it's the voice of him that we're hearing, not the voice of the author. It's not that the author is writing a difficult story. It's that he, this character is just kind of like, yes, sir, here <laughs> I go. <laughs> I was going to climb that mountain. And then it's followed immediately by him going on this quest and saying, the next Monday I decided to take a day off. I didn't tell my wife. What? What? Why isn't he telling his wife? Okay, bro. I mean... Yeah, I mean, I think we know why, right? Mm -hmm. Because all we know, all we know about the story is that there is a um, thirty-year-old, half-naked woman who's in the woods that day, and so that's what that's all he's that's all he's going on a journey to find. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (gasps) So then we've got these next couple paragraphs, which like might be my favorite part of the story because I think they're so funny. Like, cause he's a forester, right? You know, he's before this, he's like, yeah. So Stu goes on adventures, but I'm a forester done it for 19 years. And then he proceeds to go on this hike. And literally he says 10 minutes into it, my legs started to wear out and my water canteen was already running dry. <laughs> Struggle city. He's not doing well. He's not he's, doing well. He's and he, enough water yeah, for he, 10 minutes. <laughs> Most ill-prepared hero's journey ever. <laughs> to be fair though, this is where I start to identify. <laughs> like, I get what you're saying, sir. Like I've driven as close as I can. And then 10 minutes in, oh God, I've drunk all my water and eaten all my snacks. <laughs> oh my God, it's so funny. And so he's like, So he's like making his way through the forest. It starts raining. He falls, his glasses, uh, like he loses his glasses immediately, which I relate to as I lose my glasses every single day, seven to eight times a day. But he he clearly hasn't checked the weather because he says, I suppose I should have watched the weather forecast before jumping into this. I mean, glasses are gone. It's pouring rain. He's exhausted. Not going well. But it's it's interesting because it's kind of you know we we get all of that set up when we when we meet Stu at the beginning right the the guy without the GPS and he just kind of goes on these mad expeditions and um and you know that is kind of the adventure he's looking for so even though it's only ten minutes in and everything's going wrong and it's raining he's he, you know he literally says that's why this expedition was feeling so good mm-hmm. so he's like he loves the fact that he's kind of created an adventure out of nothing, right? So like the fact that he's kind of done it badly is 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 contributing to the idea of this being this kind of incredible quest. But we as the sort of readers just have this perspective of, of just looking at him going, you're such an idiot, you're such an idiot. Turn around. You're prepared. You don't know what you're doing. Um, <laughs> and it, it is really beautiful language. Like 
it, it feels like the author takes his time as we go through this hike with the narrator. And then there's this moment where he notices a small golden tree frog looked down at me, puffing its throat. And he's, he notices that this is rare um, and that a site alone could go on any naturalist bucket list, that they're critically endangered, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he notes that they're endangered because of we. So, you know, because of humans. So we get this nice moment with the golden tree frog. Um, he He's fallen, but he kind of decides to get through it. Doesn't have his glasses. Keeps moving forward, though, Jen. He is persevering. Oh, he's uh, here for our times. Um, he keeps going. So then we get to the point where he, where this is kind of the climax of his journey, right? So he sees the doll that Stu saw. That's kind of the the thing that first caught Stu's attention. He sees the doll. He looks at it. It's on as a sort of tied to a tree, and he realizes it's a crucifix. And then he sees the house, and then he sees a skull, a child's um, skull coated in um soot and ash um and that you know sets him completely um off balance and essentially he 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 trips on on something and falls and he has quite a serious um accident he breaks i think he breaks a bone mm-hmm yeah, but it's quite interesting. You get quite a lot of information quite quickly, and obviously, you get the information about the crucifix, and you get the information about the skull. Mm-hmm. And he does see that the hut opens up, and a man's head pops out. So it's all these things really fast. He falls, he hurts himself, and he says he shifts his leg, and he sees that he's actually squashed the golden tree frog too. So <laughs> he's killed this endangered, critically endangered species. And then he passes out. So our narrator, you know, this hero's journey is just struggle city. So then basically what happens is he he wakes up and he's surrounded by uh, an old man, a young lady, and two boys in their hut. And they are completely naked um, except for the loincloths. And the children have scars across their face um, that he said, careful ones rising evenly from their jaws like tapering tiger stripes. And um, they basically take care of him. And he has a conversation with with the husband or the man of the house. Yeah. And you don't get very much more information than that. This is kind of the end of the encounter, right? So we understand mm-hmm. that he goes and then he goes and they like basically they help him to get to it's they help him to get to the nearby village. And from there, he gets an ambulance, and that's that's kind of the end. But we are given these like snippets, these tiny snippets of detail. So we've got the crucifix, we've got this child's skull, we've got those strange kind of marks, the scars on the children's faces. Mm-hmm. Um, but he doesn't really comment on those any more than just describing them, just telling them telling us those as facts. Um, but obviously what kind of turns out later is um, there's a lot more to that story and to mm-hmm. that encounter. Yeah. And I think what surprised me here, Jen, is I had based on the description of the woman and the dolls and the trees thought that like, maybe this was 
uh, an indigenous group or this woman was from um, people that lived in an isolated area. But the man of the of the house um, who takes care of him speaks English and says that he and his family are waiting for the second coming. Um, like they're they're religious Christians, I believe. Yeah, but they're they're religious. Yeah, they're they're not indigenous. They are just a family waiting out for the end of days, staying away from sin, as they say, in the jungle. Yeah. I like it too, because I think there's so often there's like the trope in literature, especially short stories, especially hero's journey, where someone from civilization or the city goes and finds like an indigenous um, people and learns from them. And there's like some elements, it's like some, a very common trope. And I like the fact that he, that they're like Christian or religious kind of extremists almost, or it, it's mm. different. And I like that it plays against the norm, what I expected. Yeah. And I think you've also tapped into something there that is really important about this story. This, this idea of kind of turning the expectation on the head of this, of the hero's journey. I mean, we've just had, I mean, we've kind of been describing blow by blow what happens on this journey. It is, anything but a hero's journey. He sets off for no good reason. It goes badly from the beginning. He he ends up having to be rescued by the very people he's he tries to discover. Mm-hmm. And it's it's just it's a clever way of kind of leading us down a, a it's a clever way of the author leading us down an, an unexpected path in a, you know, as we always do with these stories in a really condensed way. And I, and I really enjoyed that about it. Yeah, we're not at the end of the story. <laughs> So it, it starts, the third section <clears throat> starts two weeks after he's been rescued. Um, he says, since meeting the man and his family. Okay, since going onto their property and then breaking your ankle and requiring support. Um, and he's, he, he says that he's been in the hospital when he tells his wife about these people he's met. She does not care at all. She's like, why were you lying to me? and saying you were going to work and his kids don't care. He said, not even the children could have budged from their iPads to hear me out. So already his dreams of coming back and having a stew-like story to tell are dashed. Nobody cares. When he goes back to the tricky jester, it's an absolute, it's it's just a shit show. Mm-hmm. And like he said, you know, he says um, at one point, I, I couldn't believe it. I had something. I finally had something. Not just a story. I had a tale. A damn good one. And nobody didn't care to hear it. Like, it just, he's kind of, here I am, guys. It's not just a story. It's a tale. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, it just, yep. I just love that kind of bravado. And then everyone's like, and he realizes in the same breath, like, what? Nobody yeah. wants to hear my... Yeah. He's just like, he, he loves, he loves the story. He loves it so much. He calls up everybody and invites them to the tricky jester on a Thursday because he can't wait till Saturday. <laughs> and so then he's like, tell, he's like drinking. He's telling them all the details. And then he mentions the skull, which like he'd mentioned once or twice going through. And that's, that's the silence. Like, no, everyone's yeah. very quiet. 
And they're not seeing this story as like stews that was engaging and fun. They're like, you found a human skull. What? Yeah. Yeah. And I think what's interesting is that in the way that the story is written, like the first time I read this, I also didn't dwell on the skull. The same way that like Stu, when he first tells his story, um, doesn't think, oh my goodness, there's this and who's not kind of fully closed and she's not, you know, she doesn't look like she's in a good way. And his reaction isn't like a human, like, holy crap, what's wrong? How can I help her? I read the skull thing and I didn't even really clock it. And like, again, you know, and it's because um, the narrator is just telling us, taking us through this thing. And then you get to the, you hear the response of his, I guess, like audience, his friends at the Tricky Jester. And they are like, wait, well, we don't hear anything. We just hear this silence deepening Mm -hmm. because there's shock about this, about what happens, about the skull. Yeah. So they, you know, that kind of ends at the tricky jester and then the story really wraps up. And basically what we find out, it says things were quiet for a few days till I switch on the news one night and I see the forest family on TV. And basically because he told that story to his friends at the tricky jester, one of them went back home, told their wife who was a social worker and they went and found that family um, and arrested them. The family is plastered all over the news. They're imprisoned. The The father is beaten. You know, it says they make sure to beat him good first. My children showed me a photo of him bloodied up that went viral on WhatsApp. And yeah. this family is destroyed. And, and you realize really what's what's been happening as well. So the, the kind of strange marks on the children's faces are... Um, are there because they were given this kind of there's this kind of rite of passage where they're, where they're, the father like cut the faces of the children and rubbed pepper in the wounds um, until they could do it without flinching. I mean, it's it's desperately mm-hmm. difficult and cruel and hard to read. And the you know we hear that the father is justifying doing this. Um, he says, we, you know, you call it child abuse, we call it a rite of passage, was his defense. So the kind of depth of the disturbing practices that were going on are only come to light, you know, at, at this point, at the end. Um, there's also that difficult um moment where you realize that the child who died, it just said they he had um the child had a fever and they just got worse and worse. Mm-hmm. So you know again it's that sense of like have they just that could have just been something that could have been cured and could have they you know who knows but that child could have gotten better potentially. And it's just the the depth and the gravity of that really only hits at this point. And that you know, you realize that these things that were kind of a, you know, the curiosity of the of a half-naked woman, a woman with her breasts out, actually, you know, when you look deeper, which neither Stu nor our narrator did, there's this very disturbing, difficult, um, you know, harmful, real story that needs to be unpacked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you can see our narrator trying to deal with that in the last few sentence or paragraphs. You don't get the sense that he figures it out, but 
He says, one of the papers ran a photo of the two boys sitting on a bench in some children's home looking totally lost, species displaced from habitat. He said, as much as I try not to think about it now, it always comes back. And then he stops going to the tricky jester. He's not talking to his friends. He says, nobody really bothers with me now. Sometimes I remember the two boys wrapping their arms around their father's waist back in El Tutuche. I have to beg my children to hug me sometimes. Yeah. It's sad. He kind of kind of realizes the impact that he's that he's had, you know, when you realize the you know, when you think back to the what happened to the frog, when he realizes that there was this endangered frog that was kind of waiting in the wilderness to be discovered and that it was our, you know, it's our fault, our kind of human nature's fault that we disturb and displace these incredible creatures and then he kind of accidentally kills that frog just by his kind of presence Mm -hmm. and then again you know it's sort of you you feel this being mirrored again with the family and that he's kind of destroyed something by by being there and by opening his mouth but then you know is that good or is that bad I mean there's a way to see that as I mean that's incredibly sad that line about the boys but at the same time they're living in this kind of out of society in a way that meant that a child died and the the boys were being subjected to this kind of cruel practices it's really difficult to kind of understand the line of like did he do right did he do wrong mm-hmm. i don't think he meant to do any of it but it's 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 hard to know what to unpack there yeah and the i think there's this thing about how, you know, society impedes on this family that has gone to escape from society and they lock them up and say that they've been abusing their children. And then this, the state beats the father so bloody and puts the fix, picture all over WhatsApp. So there's also this savagery and this violence that comes from the state as well. So it's this, uh, you know, he, our author's definitely asking us to to think about it. I don't think he's telling us what we should think, but he's giving us these, this really unsettling situation. And the narrator, you know, the last sentence he says, or the last paragraph, he says, when the urge comes to beg someone to listen to me, I remind myself of what happened the one time people did in fact listen. Don't matter if what happened was right or wrong. As long as I can feel the ground beneath my feet, I just shut my damn mouth and let the world turn. cop out yeah I mean <laughs> by, bystander um <laughs> there's a lot about in this final it's like it's almost like the author saves up all of the all of the meaning for the for right at the end when this story starts to unravel and the impact that it has you know it's just reported you know we get this sense that Stu is like this parable teller and he has these adventures and then this guy wants the same and he wants to tell the story so he goes and he gets the story and then he tells the story and then the you know the the um the father gets beaten and it goes viral and you know just this sense that we are as a species we're just hungry for these tales these parables these sensations and actually the kind of broader impact of our words our broader um the the idea that we 
if when we're listened to, when these stories are heard, actually, they have kind of these extraordinary consequences and they're not just something to be seen and laughed at and, and told. And it doesn't elevate the narrator. It actually impacts on the people who are the subject of them. Mm-hmm. There's so much there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, there's so much there. And it's like, it reminds me of Barbara Kingsolver's um, The Poisonwood Bible which is about oh, yeah. a Baptist family that lives in, I can't, I think it's the Congo. Um, and it, I mean, also, you know, Jen, you and I have worked in international development and that is, you can look, there are thousands of examples of when people with good intentions or people looking for adventures um, go to another person's community as, as a way for a good story to tell or to put on Instagram and the harm that that can have. I think what was interesting, what stuck with me, Jen, was this idea of he found this within his own country and his own, um, you know, location. It didn't seem like he had to go very far out of town. And it made me think about communities within the United States that um, that are religious fundamentalists and live away from society so they can escape their rules. And I grew up in the West. And there's a large Mormon population in the West. So I started thinking about uh, polygamist Mormon families that live on the outskirts of society because polygamy isn't recognized. And they end up, some communities end up living kind of isolated, very poverty stricken lives because they can't um, access state resources. Um, But they believe that the state is infringing upon their right to, to, be free in their religion. So it's just so interesting. And I think what this story does really well is on the one hand, you just think at the beginning, I was like, let these people alone. Like, why are we, why are we going up to the woods in order that you've got a good story to tell at your fucking Saturday night pub gathering mm-hmm. um you know why are you going to see these people as if they're kind of creatures to be looked at and and spoken about and then the the other side of it exactly as you say is like there are some very harmful practices going on in certain communities that aren't kind of called out because they're sort of outside the law yeah like what is the role of the state versus a family when it comes to things like this. Um, Because, you know, the kids weren't educated. They had the scars across their faces. And you see that in some of these uh, fundamentalist uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, this FDLS, what we call uh, fundamentalist Mormon movement, is that often children um, in some of these communities aren't educated. And when does the state step in? And when, I think that's the question that the author is asking us to think about is uh, like the freedom of the family versus our own best intentions versus journeys. It's a lot. It is a lot. And that's why I love this story. Yeah. Yeah. And also, you know, what is our role as observers? where does all of our responsibility lie as well, as well as kind of the role that the state plays or that the police play? Mm -hmm. It's like, what are we, what role are we each playing? Mm -hmm. And should we go and step on the, step into these kind of um, quote unquote, like wild areas of the 
of the endangered tree frog um, and leave our mark and do our damage? Or should we let well alone? Mm-hmm. I think it raises some questions that, that as so often with these short stories, don't get answered for us and we must ponder for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yep. And we'll send you down an internet rabbit hole reading about different American isolationist religious fundamentalist communities like I did. Just the logical offspring of reading this story. <laughs> so Lizzie, why do you think it's important to read this story? Like you've said before, Jen, the story raises really interesting questions about our role as bystanders, about uh, the role of the state and the individual, but also it's just a beautifully written story. I mean, Hossein makes the language of Trinidad um, accessible to us as readers, not, not from there. He tells this great story of this bumbling man just trying to get some attention from his friends and makes it into kind of a moral dilemma and quandary in a way that I didn't expect. Um, So, I mean, read it for the quote unquote adventure, but also read it for the questions you're going to ask yourself at the end of it. Um, Jen, why do you think we should read this story? This is an interesting one for me because I read it like three or four times before. And even as we started to record this, I thought, I don't know why people should read this story. (laughs) I kind of didn't know what to make of it. And, you know, because because I find it harder to relate to this story because I I hate the narrator so hard. (laughs) He's just a heinous person. It's quite difficult. I found it quite difficult to be immediately sort of in tune or to kind of know what I wanted to take away with it. But... I really feel that through our discussion, I've realized how multi-layered it is and how actually this hook of this kind of bumbling, unlikable character um, allows us to both see things through his eyes, but also to take a step back and judge him and therefore also ourselves in as this story um, unfolds. And I really enjoyed being slightly on the outside looking in and then and then sort of grappling with some of those issues and those themes that you've brought up the idea of bystanders the idea of where we should or shouldn't intervene in the world and you know how we question and judge and are all on a quest for the best story we can tell so Ooh. yeah That's good. Thanks for reading with me, Jen. Thanks for reading with me, Lizzie. The next story is As the Last We May Know by S.L. Huang. You can find it on tour.com. Find the links at shortsapodcast.com or by following Shorts a Podcast on Instagram or Twitter. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. We'll see you next week.